Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying Genesis as it leads into Exodus, its great sequel, and we hope to get you thinking about an old story in a new way. This morning's class will begin with a reading from Exodus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and that whole generation Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Friends, there are three movies I probably watch over and over whenever the weather is rainy and gray and I'm waiting for basketball. I always go to Gladiator or Braveheart and always Godfather 2. You notice that I said Godfather 2 and not The Godfather. Godfather 2 is just better. It's both a sequel and a prequel to the first film, And it's so tightly written that it was the first sequel to win an Academy Award for Best Picture. And yes, I am suggesting that Exodus is like Godfather 2, because it looks backward and it looks forward. It's micro with the origins of a family and micro with the plight of a mighty nation. And I want to remind you of something that we've learned so far in our chapters to this point, that Genesis and Exodus were written at the time of the exile, With Egypt, uh, the captivity in Egypt, you get many details, the bricks without straw and laboring under the harsh Egyptians. But the exile is a backstory that we don't know all that much about. We are told that it happened into the book of 2 Kings, but Babylon was just something that was so sad they didn't really mention it. I'll try to say this again. Exile and Exodus are two important backstories we need to know. But while we have the book of Exodus to record the event in Egypt, in exile, it's almost too sad to tell, and there are whispers through Scripture. Psalm 22, which was written at the time of the exile, the psalmist writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think the worst part of the exile was that they were losing their religion and they were losing a sense of themselves. It happened this way. Some 600 years before Jesus, the Babylonian king, the superpower of that time, had this idea of, taking the best and brightest of their conquered peoples and using them for forced labor in their super cities far away from home. And so it was there that they got busy and they started writing stories down. They started collating the Bible. They started recording things that had been told maybe by the children's bedside for generations and generations and generations. And so what they needed was a national story. The story of Genesis is a national story. The story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, their national stories, in the way that uh, Paul Revere's Midnight Ride would be a national story, or Washington and the Cherry Tree, or We Have Nothing to Fear but Fear Itself, or Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You But What You Can Do For Your Country. These are all stories to unite a people, and so the book of Genesis would do this for them while they were far from home. But the story of Joseph... Jacob's child Joseph is a different kind of national story. It's different than the others because unlike, well, unlike the patriarchs, 
before God is hidden. He's implicit. He's in the background. And yet, in time, God would reveal himself to be there all along. And this feels right to me. Sometimes we just can't know except when we're looking back. So the story of Joseph goes like this. And this is how they end up in Egypt. Joseph is a favorite son of Jacob. Jacob gives him a coat, a royal coat. Uh, Our older translations say coat of many colors, but it probably means coat with sleeves. And of course, the older brothers hate him. They plot to kill him. They sell him in the end to a caravan, and through fits and starts, he becomes immensely important in Egypt. He becomes the number two man in charge of famine relief. And in time, his brothers come for food to Egypt, and Joseph saves his family. And one of the finest speeches that all of Scripture, Joseph will say this to his brothers. It's Genesis chapter 45, and it begins with the first verse. Joseph toys with them a bit. They can't even imagine who he is. He's been so long. He's wearing Egyptian clothing. He doesn't look like them. But here he reveals himself in this, in this big reveal, and you can only imagine the terror of the brothers as he tells them. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before those who stood before him, and he cried out, Send everyone away from me, so that no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Then he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, so dismayed they were at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. It's truly remarkable, and God was there all along. In my last chapter, I sang a chorus from Dolly Parton's Coat of Many Colors. I don't know why I associate the Old Testament with country music, but here we go. Another favorite song of mine is Casey Musgraves, titled Rainbow. And you might recall that the, um, that the chorus goes like this. Well, the sky is finally open. The rain and wind stop blowing. But you're stuck in that old same old storm again. You hold tight to your umbrella. Darling, I'm just trying to tell you that there's always been a rainbow hanging over your head. Okay, download the song. It's better than me singing it. But sometimes there's always a rainbow hanging over our heads. We've just got to look back to see it. We've got to look back to see perhaps that closed doors lead to open windows. We've got to look back to see if we were in the right place at the right time. The story of Joseph is a story of that implicit presence of God. But when we look back, we can find that he was there all along and we're right where we're supposed to be. And in the sequel to Genesis that we call Exodus, we find a surprising phrase, the sons of Israel, we're told. I'll read the verse again. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Sons of Israel. That's a remarkable little phrase. has two implications. One, it, it means the dream came true. God does keep God's promises. And the dream in Genesis chapter 12, when he took an old man named Abram out under a night sky, he promised him everything he ever wanted. 
the stars above his head, God said, will be your children, and I'll give you land to give to them. That's all he ever wanted, children and something to hand them down. And the dream would come true, but it would take time for that dream to come true. Even the story of Abraham is a story of waiting faith. The promise comes in Genesis chapter 12. He doesn't get a kid until Genesis chapter 21, and that's a long time. And Sometimes we've got to walk just like Abraham. We've got to walk with the promise, and we've got to walk trusting that one day our dreams, too, will come true. That's the first implication. The second one is this. To say that they're the sons of Israel means that they are in relationship with God. In relationship. Friends, this is huge. You know, I like to say that if you want to understand passages of the Bible, you've got to walk around in the shoes. You've got to live in the world. You've got to think like they do. And in the Bronze Age, to say that anybody would be friends or family with the gods, little g gods, would be nonsensical. No, if they believed in the gods at all, and they all did, they believed that the gods would toy with humanity or they would need to be appeased so that they wouldn't hurt humanity. The gods had no relationship with humanity. They were there to be bargained with. You know, when you read uh, Bible stories, you always see these, these tales of God's people being drawn uh, by the golden calf, right? Tempted by the golden calf. They build a golden calf or they worship a golden calf. If you ever w wondered what in the world was about that golden calf, I want to remind you that the golden calf was a rain god. A rain god in a world where if it doesn't rain, your wheat doesn't grow and your children die. They were tempted to the golden calf because they were hedging their bets. And that also sounds pretty human to me. And besides the golden calf themselves, everywhere around them they were tempted to worship something besides the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For you botanists out there, you might be interested to know that one of the few trees that grows in the land of the Bible is an oak tree. But with the oak tree, there's always a, a symbiotic little tree growing underneath it uh, called the pistachio tree. They grow together. And, and they're everywhere, a, a big oak with a small pistachio. And so even there, ancient people believed that the oak tree would represent a god. They, it would represent Baal, the rain god, the oak, the mighty oak, the male would be Baal. And the pistachio tree would be the female, and that would represent Asherah, which is the fertility god. So even the land would tempt them away from Yahweh. And then there was a Canaanite god who was very prolific and demanded the ultimate sacrifice from them. This God was called Malik, and he demanded the sacrifice of the children. Now, it is for this reason that the Hebrews carried into Egypt another story. And there are many theories about this, but I believe that Genesis chapter 22 would be the very story that they would need to carry uh, to keep them from being tempted away from gods that would hurt them in any way. You might remember the story. It's the story of God's command to sacrifice Isaac, and it comes well, it comes with a lot of controversy. This has vexed people for generations. But let me read the story to you, and then I'll, I'll see if we can't see this in light of Exodus and see this in a new way. It's Genesis chapter 22. Remember, Abraham just got a child in Genesis chapter 21, and now he's asked to do the unthinkable. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he set out, and he went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. 
The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Well, the controversy, cautious is there's several. Of one, the request itself doesn't seem in character with anything that God would ever ask of anyone, let alone Abraham, who, who's originally the, the original human, right? The original person who's going to be different in the way that God asks us to be different. And then there's the fact that Abraham doesn't argue. Look back over the course of Genesis. Abraham argues and bargains all the time. He's always, always bargaining and questioning and praying, which is also a good example of the way that God wants us to pray. God wants us in relationship with him so that we can argue with God and question God and ask God and search for God and wonder where God is, and wonder why God doesn't do things. It, it reveals that we care enough or we believe that God cares enough about us to answer in some way, right? But I want you to remember that they lived in a world where the gods would ask this question to sacrifice your children. And I believe that, that Abraham, for not for a second, the reason why he didn't argue is because not for a second did he believe that God would actually do it. Because if you look at Genesis 22, verse 5, and I'm going to read this very carefully one more time, then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. And if you have an open Bible, circle the we. We will come back to you. I don't believe for a second that Abraham believed for a second, rather, that God would do this uh, to his child. And in time, Abraham is revealed to be right. Remember, the angel stays the hand of the knife. Uh, the sacrifice is not enacted of his child, but rather of a ram caught in the thicket. And God provides, and once and for all, God reveals this to his child, Abraham, and to his son, Isaac. And that is this, I don't hurt you. I'm not the God who ever wills hurt. I will never, ever, ever hurt you. If it doesn't have love in it, it doesn't have God in it. I will not toy with you. I will not ask for your gifts to merely appease me. It is not a vending machine relationship, but rather a relationship of love and heart and healing and protection. And they will carry this into the land of Egypt because, because they will never be tempted away from the God who always reveals himself to be the God of love and of healing. Back in my seminary days, I used to practice a little experiment. I still remember to do it from time to time, offered by an author named Frederick Beekner, who was quite popular at the time, and still his, his writings sell very, very well, and lots, lots of you get emails uh, with Fred Beekner quotes. Frederick Beekner had an exercise in the 90s that went something like this. Anytime you walk down the street and if you see someone, just say to yourself, Christ died for thee. The foolish, the lonely, Christ died for thee. The homeless, Christ died for thee. The stranger, Christ died for thee. The odd, the annoying, Christ died for thee. The beautiful, Christ died for thee. The ugly, Christ died for thee. The warmly human, Christ died for thee. The coldly indifferent, Christ died for thee. And eventually, if you spend the whole day saying Christ died for thee, you'll appreciate or you'll feel deep down in your bones that Christ died for me. They'll need this love. They'll need to understand that God loves them this way. They'll need to understand God protects them to this day because they're in Egypt. Egypt is the world superpower, and it is full of technology, and it is full of brilliance, and it is full of, of non-repeatable human accomplishment, but what it doesn't have is it doesn't have love for the Hebrews. 
they also had another story to remind them of the importance of obedience in humankind, even in the face of technology. It goes way back to chapter 11. It's called the Tower of Babel. And I mentioned this in an earlier chapter. In our Sunday school days, I think many of us assumed that the tower was built in order for them to, to ascend into heaven to go find God. When in reality, the tower is just a monument to the ingenuity. And the sin of the people living in Babel, not that they all speak one language, but rather that they're not obedient. God asked them to settle all the nations of the earth, but instead they just they just they put in one place. They decide to pool their resources. They're not obedient. So the punishment is the punishment of confused languages, not because languages are bad. This is God's vehicle to get them to do what God wants them to do. In the end, God will have us do what God will have us do. Uh, and the technology uh, just just shows that God is absolutely indifferent to our human accomplishments because none of it can face the glory of God. I have my own story. A few weeks ago, I was in Israel with my archaeologist friend, Idan, and we were at a Roman town called Bet Shan, which is also called the Pompeii of the Middle East because it was destroyed by an earthquake in the 8th century, and tens of thousands of people were killed. But they're continually uncovering things in Bet Shan, and, and it's within the modern town of Bet Shan, so that those people could simply move. They could find a lot more of the city, but they're not going to do that. And they found an old Roman road and the piece of a Roman racetrack in between a, a zippy mart and a grocery store and an old car garage. It was fascinating to see this 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 antiquity right in the middle of all this everyday life. Well, as Idan pointed out to me, that this racetrack during the reign of Herod the Great was just that. It was a racetrack. Herod the Great was the king who ruled for about 40 years before Jesus' birth, right up until about the time of Jesus' birth, and, and that's when he died. And he was a little of a Saddam Hussein character and that he was a cruel despot, but he sort of kept a lid on things. And he also, uh, what, what Herod would do is he kept him doing nominally Jewish things. So it was a racetrack during Herod's lifetime. After Herod dies, the Romans take over, and this racetrack becomes a place where men kill other men for a ticket. My point is this. The Romans were bored and they were cruel, and as W.H. Auden uh, said, and it was quoted in the newspaper this, this Sunday morning, it's not remarkable that the Romans lasted as long as they did. What's remarkable is that they lasted as long as they did with so little creativity or love or hope. Technology is fine, but, but we must not live without hope and love in the way that God loves us. They were given everything at the very beginning, Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the creation stories. They were given everything they need, uh, an ethic of vocation, permission, prohibition. And I'll remind you of these. Vocation means that we're all given something to do. We are made in God's image, and we are made to create. We are made to do. We're made to love, no matter how old, no matter our circumstance. Permission means that we're able to do it in our way. Someone has a better way of doing it than me, and you have a better way of doing it than I do, and, and we all get the job done together in what makes us happy. And then prohibition, those are the limits. Those are the, the, some things you just simply cannot have. These are the limits that keep us healthy, that keep us safe, that keep us honoring people as beloved children of God and not things. So God's people will need these stories. They will need a national story. They will need an ethic, and they will need a reminder that if it doesn't have love in it, it doesn't have God in it. And that will continue in the story of Exodus. Amen.